right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter number 14. Just would like it to be known on the record that I'm not starting until five till. Nobody can get mad at me if we run a little late here this morning, but uh, I'll do my best uh, to do the passage justice. Uh, We may take a little time out of our uh, application and implementation time this morning uh, to get through our text. John 14, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Originally, uh, I was tasked with 1 through 14. I quickly came to grips with the fact that we needed to shave a few verses off this morning. So we're going to stop in verse number 11. Um, I I for sure have next week to finish out the chapter. Uh, Andy and Dave, I may call an audible and potentially go a third week because I'm just not sure we can get through this text, but uh, we'll do our best. John 14, let's read our paragraph this morning, verses 1 through 11. Follow with me as I read. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Our hearts are full this morning as we even kicked off this gathering with recognizing our young people who have sought to know and to love, and we pray that they would now live out these words that they have memorized, that they have hid in their heart. We know, Father, without the word of God that we are, uh, we are lost. We have uh, no knowledge of our own that could bring us to you, but through Uh, the Lagos, Christ, the living word. And so we pray even this morning as we open up your scriptures, inspired, inerrant, without error, breathed out by you, I pray that we would approach this time um, with careful attention, that you would guard us from distraction and that you would draw us into a time of focused attention to your word, that you would quicken our hearts 
you would quiet our minds and that we would hear and respond rightly to your word. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. I've entitled this morning's message, Turning from Fear to Faith. Turning from Fear to Faith. And in true Johannine form, the priority and major theme of our text this morning is, big shocker here, faith. The theme is believing, it's trust. We, of course, anchor this theme in our paragraph, verses 1 through 11. And once again, we anchor this paragraph in the stated purpose of John's gospel out of chapter 20, verse number 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we have here in verse number one of our passage, a simple statement from Christ that we will anchor our text in. What's that simple phrase in verse number one of chapter 14? Christ says, let not your hearts be what? Troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. This statement really will help us guide through our text this morning. It provides the structure by which the disciples' questions and Jesus' subsequent responses will all be linked together around this opening statement of, let not your hearts be troubled. So here we have our text. We'll start this morning with understanding what this word troubled really means. It's not necessarily a surprise. You probably have a good idea of what this word troubled really means, but I'll, I'll provide some context and, and maybe greater clarity. It can mean this, to be stirred up. It can cause acute emotional distress, or it can have the idea of a turbulence in one's heart and mind, or to cause great mental distress. So why then does Jesus introduce this statement at the beginning of chapter 14? Why were the disciples seemingly troubled? in distress, in a state of turbulence. If you remember the context of our passage this morning, we find ourselves right in the middle of the upper room discourse, right? We have Jesus, the Last Supper. We have him gathered around with his disciples. This began back in chapter 13, verse 31, where Jesus describes in clear detail that there will be an imminent physical separation of Jesus from his disciples, and based on Dave's exposition of Peter's response this past Sunday, it seems very clear that Peter and potentially the other disciples were not expecting Jesus to physically leave them. There was a disconnect. There was some confusion around this idea that Jesus is introducing. So as we continue to work our way through this upper room discourse we will continue to be drawn to two of these major themes. One, the identity of Jesus. You think that the disciples would have this down by now, that Jesus is who he said he is, the Christ, the Son of God, the long-awaited-for Messiah, that Jesus and the Father are one, that Jesus was sent down from the Father on a mission, and he is going to go back up to the Father you think that would be pretty clear, right? That his identity is that of deity. 
But Christ will take this opportunity once again in these final moments to summarize what he has already taught his followers about himself. And in addition to that, he will strategically add new insights to support his previous teachings on himself. The second theme is this. We're going to find clarity in this upper room discourse of some reasons for his death. He will also, once again, take this opportunity to speak to the reality of his impending death and sacrifice on their behalf. This is what we're going to see throughout the remainder of the book. This is a sobering reality that, once again, Jesus has not come to meet their felt needs or to be crammed into this small little box of their disciples' expectations. He has come on a mission from the Father. Matthew 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus has come. So in our passage this morning, we'll see Christ, the good shepherd. We'll see this opportunity that Christ has to come alongside his disciples and speak truth into their fear to speak truth into their anxieties, to speak truth even into their future failures on the behalf of Peter. And ultimately, we will see Christ speak truth into their frail human hearts and minds as they're gripped with this reality that Christ will soon depart. So these are, this is why the disciples are troubled. Christ is interacting with them in this intimate moment of meal fellowship and he's sitting around and he's sharing these truths and you can see it all over their face, the confusion, uh, the uncertainty and, and he has this empathetic moment to speak into that and Christ says, let not your heart be troubled. So what's the big idea of our text this morning? I like just the way I think, I like to create a big idea to wrap my Around, So I hope it'll be helpful for you. The big idea of our text this morning is this, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, which he is, we can, without reservation, place our complete faith in the person and work of Jesus to meet all our needs in this world and for all eternity. One more time, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we can, without reservation, place our complete faith in the person and work of Jesus to meet all our needs in this world and for all eternity. This is the big idea of our text. So chapter 13 ended heavy. And there seems to be an atmosphere of doom and gloom, so to speak. Do you feel it? Are you there with Christ and his disciples? If you're there and you're Peter and and you're the other disciples, are you feeling the tension and the pain of a three-year ministry with Christ that is now coming to an end. Christ is speaking in terms that didn't meet up with their expectations. Who they wanted Christ to be and what they desired for Christ to be is not what He is communicating in front of them. Jesus has just declared that He is leaving. And not only is He leaving, but where He's going, you can't go. Wow, would you be concerned about that statement if you're the disciples? I gave my life for you. I'm following you. I gave up all the 
securities of this world, my job, my family, I gave it all to follow. But now you're saying, you're leaving. I can't come. What's that all about? Peter, wrestling with this reality, has just made this incredible statement of loyalty and dedication. And just when I'm about to break out in a standing ovation and applause for Peter, what does Christ say? You won't lay your down. You won't lay down your life. You're going to deny me not once, but three times. This is the response of Christ to Peter. There's confusion. Are, are you there? There's turmoil. There's uncertainty. There's anxiety. This relationship seems to not be what we expect it to be in the disciples' eyes. So with that context, Jesus states, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Why should Peter and the rest of the disciples' hearts not be troubled? It seems to me, in this immediate context, that there is plenty of things for them to be troubled about. So with that reality, Jesus will go on to make four responses to address the disciples' troubled faith. In John chapter number 14, first he says this, not your hearts be troubled, but rather believe in God. Let not your hearts be troubled, but rather believe in God. We see this in verse one, right? The centrality of the theme of faith once again shows itself here in John's gospel. Faith continues to be the antidote for faith for doubt, for fear, for failure, and a host of other negative human emotions. In our frailty, what does Christ do? He calls us to all, does he call us to always understand? He doesn't. He doesn't call us to always see how the dots are connected in life. He doesn't always give us the why behind the circumstances and situations that we may, may be going through. He certainly doesn't always call us to a point of complete readiness the time of a trial and difficulty and uncertainty may hit our life. But in the midst of all of that, what does Christ do? He always calls us to believe. You may not feel ready. You may not see it coming. You may not know why a difficulty is in your life. But despite all of that, He always calls us to believe. No matter what. Whether we have the beauty of context or not, we are to simply believe. Why? Not only why, but how can we possibly do this? When we look at the Gospel of John, has not Christ clearly established himself capable and worthy of this ask? Christ... It doesn't, he says it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what you might be experiencing in your life. It doesn't matter what the circumstances around you may be saying about truth and about me and about following me. He simply says, believe, trust, follow. So he is capable and worthy of this ask from his disciples and ultimately from us. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. His answer to their wavering faith and the uncertainty of this impending separation is don't be troubled, believe in God. And don't just believe in God, believe in me also because I, why? I am God. And so if you're going to believe in God, believe in me. It is the antidote to the fear and the failure and the doubt of the disciples is belief. Christ 
calls us to believe. After all, who else can ascribe unto themselves the power to raise Lazarus up from the grave of death? Who else has the power over the earthly elements to change the water into wine? Chapter 2. Who else has the ability to do the impossible and walk on the water of the Sea of Galilee? Chapter 6. Who else can confound the minds of men and take little and make much in multiplying the loaves? fishes of chapter 6, and the list goes on and on to the miracles that we have given testimony thus far in John's account. We go on and we consider not just his works, but who he is. Who else can emphatically state, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, as we will look forward to in John 15. It is on the basis of these realities, his works and his person, his character, his identity as Savior and Lord, it's on the basis of these Realities and the unique and special ways that Christ has revealed himself as the long-awaited-for Messiah. So Christ has come down from the Father, and because, do you remember, before Abraham was, I am, he will go back up to the Father and take his glorious seat at the right hand of the Father for all eternity. So does Christ have the authority and the capability to call us to believe no matter what? The answer to that question is a resounding yes. When you don't feel like it, when disease has stricken your life, when a family member is taken away, when a young man with the hope of love and a life and a family together, when that fiancé is taken away not once but twice, can you keep on trusting? Can you keep on believing? The answer to that is yes. Because Jesus is God. So when Christ said, believe in God, it would have been on the it would have been based on the Jewish context of what? When Christ said, believe in God, what would the Jewish context remember? They would remember deliverance. They would remember what? Covenant relationship. They would remember incredible power. So when Christ connects himself to this statement, not only is he reteaching and reestablishing himself as deity, as God, but he is also reminding them of his person and work over the past three years of Christ's earthly ministry. He's calling them to remember. A call to belief is a call to remember, to remember who God is, what he's done for us on our behalf, how he has saved us. How he is the creator of all things, the Alpha, the Omega, the First, the Last, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is the great morning star. This is, this is Jesus, right? So when he calls us to believe, he's calling us to reflect on those realities. Should the reality of the revealed God in scriptures minister to our faith in times of trouble? Should the reality of who God is and who he will always be minister to our faith when it is shaken to the core? 
to the reality of who Jesus is, what he has done and ultimately will do as he continues to make his way to the cross, should that reality bolster our hearts and our minds into greater fellowship and fellowship when we are tempted to throw in the towel. Not only when we're tempted to throw in the towel, but when the great deceiver in our flesh whisper lies that it's not worth it, should those realities make an impact in our life? The answer is yes. Yes, it should. Christ knew that. And so he called his disciples to simply believe. Number two, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I go to prepare a place and there's plenty of room. Now your hearts be troubled. Why? Number two, because I go to prepare a place and there's plenty of room. Let's look at verses two and three. It says this. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what have I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is taking a moment to shepherd his disciples. They're worried. He's spoken firmly and directly to Peter. He's communicated some sobering realities to them and, and he shows his heart. He, he, he cares for them. He loves them. And where he is going, he desires them to be. This is the heart of our Savior put on display here. So much so that he assures them that what he will be preparing in heaven has the capacity to welcome all of them. Not only does he anchor their hope in the reality that there is plenty of room for them. Secondly, he also gives a positive perspective on his departure from them. So he circles back around and he says, look, I, yes, I'm going to leave, but it's not all bad like you previously potentially had in mind in chapter number 13. He basically says this. If I leave to prepare this place for you, it assures you that I am and will come back for you. If I leave to prepare this place for you, it assures you that I'm going to come back for you. Right? Jesus finishes verse number three with this huge relational touch. He states that where I am, you may be also. Christ desires for his disciples, both then and now to us, to be in relationship with him for all eternity. That is his purpose. That is his goal. That is his desire, to be in relationship with his people. Are you thankful that Jesus loves us that much? Are you thankful for Jesus? I think of Luke chapter number 15, verses 4 through 7. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus loves 
the lost, lonely sheep. And in his love, he has sought after us, drawing us graciously to himself in faith and belief in his person and his work. And it's in this moment that Christ is reminding his disciples of his relationship with them as the good shepherd and as the good shepherd and the door of the sheep, he is going to prepare a place for them and he desires them to be there with him for all eternity. So he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Number three, let not... Your hearts be troubled. Why? Because you know the way. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because you know the way. Verse number four, Jesus once again speaks to their uncertainty and emphatically declares, you know the way to where I am going. You see it there in verse four? Doubting Thomas responds in verse five, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Is this true? Do the disciples not know where Jesus is going? Jesus is going to remind them. And for our memory through the Gospel of John, let's think back to chapter 7, verse 33, where Christ says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to who? To him who sent me. He stated in chapter 8, verse 22, where I am going, you cannot come. You are from below, he's saying to the Pharisees. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning, they know where Jesus has come from and where he is to be going. I give us this context all to say the disciples do know where Jesus is going. But once again, their misplaced expectations continue to impact their understanding of Jesus' true mission, the cross. So Jesus goes on to anchor his response in nothing other than than himself. Jesus says, yes, Thomas, you do know the way because why? You know who? You know me. He says, Thomas, you do know the way. Why? Because you know me. It is here that we have our sixth of seven I am statements in John's gospel. Jesus responds, highlighting three unique aspects of Christ's person and work. He first says in verse six, I am the what? The way. Jesus speaking to the heart of salvation here and is connected to the closing statement of verse six, where he says, what at the end? No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the way. You can't get to the Father except through me. So this theme of the way seems to bookend this verse. And in doing so, Christ providentially narrows the scope of salvation. It is Christ. It is him alone. And arriving at this place, the place of what? That Christ has prepared is only possible through him, through Christ. You say you believe in the Father? It's only possible through Jesus. 
So throughout this gospel, do we not see that theme develop? Jesus has clearly established that he is what, Andy? He is better. And I love that song. I can just put that on repeat just all day. Jesus is better. He is better than the law. He is better than the religious establishment of the day. He's better than Abraham in chapter 8. He is better than anything that this world can offer. And so he earnestly says in John 7, 37 through 8, 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is what? Secondly, he is the truth. It was all the way back in John chapter 1 that we see Jesus first established as the truth. Verses 14 through 17, And the Word became flesh, and what dwelt among us? And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he from whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we continue to see this reality fully established in the following chapter because Jesus' words are His Father's words and His deeds are His Father's deeds. So He's the way. He is the truth. He embodies truth. He is truth. And thirdly, He is the life. Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The theme of life We don't have to look far to be reminded the theme of life is scattered throughout the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of John. All the way back again in chapter 1, verse 4, life is in Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 26, he has life in himself. Chapter 11, verse 25, he is the resurrection and the life. John 10, 10, there is abundant life in Christ. In John 20, 31, the theme of of our gospel, there is life by believing and many, many other passages as we look through the Gospel of John. Christ embodies life. In Jesus, there is life. He is life. Finally, and fourthly, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because Jesus is enough. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because Jesus is enough. Enough. Let's look at verse number eight of our text. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Philip then responds to Jesus this emphatic I am statement. 
This incredible description of Christ to himself, Peter, or excuse me, excuse me, Philip responds to Jesus with the question. And Jesus responds to Philip with a series of three questions back to Philip. Don't you love that when you ask a question and somebody responds back to you in a question? Well, Christ is, is pulling that move here. Not only just one question does he respond back, but he responds back with three questions to Philip. He says what? Verse 9, how can you say, or excuse me, first one, do you still not know me, Philip? Question, verse 9. Secondly, he says, how can you say, show us the Father? Question mark at the end of verse 9. And then thirdly, don't you believe I am in the Father and the Father in me? Question mark, verse number 20. These questions back to Philip expose the ignorance of his original question to Jesus. And Jesus then offers this somewhat gentle rebuke back to Philip. So what has Jesus done here in these final few verses? Jesus summarized once again who he is from earlier in the gospel. And he ultimately urges Philip to pay attention to his words and simply do what? Believe. You see that at the end of verse Number 11, believe me. Believe me. Philip had this idea of what would be enough in his mind to really know where Christ is going. He was attempting to add something onto Christ in his word and his truth and his life. Christ said, believe me. My way, my truth, my life, it's enough. You don't need a greater sign. I don't need to reveal the Father to you because you're looking at Him. I am the Father. I am God. And so Christ draws Philip back to this place of what? Belief. Remember who I am. Remember our interactions. Have you been with me too long that you've forgotten who I am? Friends, have we been there? Have we been saved too long to remember or to forget who Jesus is and his implications on our life to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him? Have we been with Christ too long to forget what he desires of us? An intimate, personal, growing relationship with Jesus. So if a person then... Now, in, in our setting and in the days ahead, we'll come to Jesus and listen to Jesus. Then they will see the Father. This is what Christ is saying. Through me is the way to the Father. Whether we believe his words or maybe we are just overwhelmed by the incredible evidence of his signs and miracles, the response is the same. Christ calls us to believe. Today, Jesus is calling us to believe. Regardless of the popular opinion of their day and ours, Jesus says, believe me. Don't be troubled. Whether we live in a Christian nation or a post-Christian nation, believe in me. This is what Jesus says. 
Don't be troubled. Regardless of the circumstances around you, regardless of what the temperature of the day may be telling you, or how you might feel on any given day, Jesus is calling us to what? Believe. Why? Because Jesus is the way. Because he is the truth and because he is the life. Because no one comes to the Father except through me, regardless of how popular, accepted that statement is. It is truth. And so believe it and respond to it rightly in humble faith. And because of this, we can, without reservation, place our complete faith in the person and work of Jesus to meet all our needs in this world and for all eternity. This is John 14, verses 1 through 11, turning our fear into faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This morning, I pray that regardless of where we may be at in our relationship with you and our walk with you, I pray that you would cause us to understand belief a little bit better this morning. That you would cause us to draw into this type of relationship that you were calling your disciples to back in John 14, uh, thousands of years ago. You're calling us into that same relationship to remember who you are and to simply believe. So, Father, I pray now as we transition to our application and implementation time, I pray that we would take these realities, your responses, the questions of the disciples, we would wrap our minds, our hearts around that and understand what does it mean for me today? How do I respond to this? How do I live this text out? I pray that you would take the seed of your word, you would plant it deep in our heart, you would cause fruit to grow and to remain. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's transition.